Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high-yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We will also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Thank you for joining us. Well, once again, excited to introduce the next in our series of A Penny for Your Thoughts, Agronomist Edition. Uh, really enjoyed this episode. Uh, really encouraging year out of the state of Indiana, uh, Purdue, get to take some really good insights away from a successful growing season from uh, Dr. Quinn from Purdue. Uh, really appreciate him sharing their success and a few of his learnings. And then also from the state of Iowa, uh, field specialist, field agronomist specialist, Angie Reekins, really good learnings from her part of the world, existed in a little drier conditions, uh, maybe maybe some fertility considerations that are just excellent for us to think about. Uh, really appreciate both of these guests. During the release of this recording, Andrew and I are actually starting something really neat. We'll be excited to share that with you over the next couple of weeks, but have some really exciting new things coming from A Penny for Your Thoughts. As always, appreciate you guys tuning in. Please uh, like our podcast and share it on your social media channels. And thank you for uh, continuing to learn with us. Well, Andrew, we've got our first guest on. Uh, why don't you introduce our first guest and we'll get rolling. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, you know, this is someone we've been wanting to talk to actually anyways, uh, above and beyond the, you know, the agronomist edition uh, wrapping up the, the year. So uh, we're lucky enough to have uh, Dr. Daniel Quinn from Purdue University on here, who is the extension corn specialist. So uh, Daniel, thanks for being on here. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Daniel, we'll start, if you would, just share a little bit about uh, maybe a 30,000-foot view. Who are you? Where are you from? Uh, your education, and then we'll jump into agronomy. Yeah, so I'm uh, the kind of, I wouldn't say new still. I feel <laughs> new still, a corn agronomist uh, here at Purdue. So I, I took over for, for Bob Nielsen, so I'm yeah. sure. Man, the, you got big shoes of, to fill. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> I had a dollar for every time I heard I had big shoes to fill, I probably wouldn't uh, need this. You can retire. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I've been at Purdue almost almost three years. It'll be coming up on three years. So uh, by way of Michigan. So I grew up in Michigan. I grew up farming family. Just been around agriculture my whole life. Um, Did two degrees in agronomy at Michigan State, um, and then went to Kentucky. So I did my PhD in Kentucky. Uh, Just a little bit different perspective uh, down there. Um, So (laughs) studied studied corn production in Kentucky uh, for a few years and then landed here at Purdue. It kind of step-by-step just led me to where I'm at here today. So worked above Indiana and below Indiana and, <laughs> and settled right in the middle. And um, yeah, just been in agronomy my, my whole grad career, uh, been around ag my whole life. It's just kind of what I enjoy and, and what I like to do. So um, yeah, being the corn agronomist here at Purdue, it's I, I always tell folks, I kind of, if it has to do with corn, I'm probably involved with it some way or somehow um, in this, in the state. So, um, you know, happy to be here. I, I enjoy my position here at Purdue. Um, it's been, been a pretty good year, which we'll talk about, but uh, yeah, had, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Well, let's, let's jump right in, I guess. Um, 
you know, maybe maybe give us a, an overview of the year, environmental conditions, uh, that sort of thing. And then honestly, we'll just kind of let you lead the discussion. What what stood out to you? Um, yeah. Lessons learned, key yeah. takeaways, anything. Yeah. 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 So, you know, this year in Indiana, you know, pretty similar across the Midwest. Uh, we, we planning progress was really good. Um, we had really strong planning progress. We were ahead uh, for most of the year. So really kind of stood out anywhere from probably five percentage points upwards to 15 percentage points above the five-year average in terms of planning progress. Um, so really from you know late April to really that first, second week of May, um, the majority of the state uh, was, was planted and, and really rolling. So uh, we had really good planting conditions. Um, so we're a little bit on the dry side, but in terms of corn planting, just didn't have a lot of replants. Um, soil conditions were really good. Um, didn't have a lot of issues. Um, and it, it warmed up really, really strong kind of in, in really the beginning of May. So really good conditions that corn just kind of shot out of the ground and, and we just had really good establishment across the state. Yep. Um, so planting conditions, you know, we were ahead, really good planting conditions, really good establishment of that crop. Um, but we got really dry. And I think that's, you know, pretty common across <laughs> yeah. a lot of the Midwest is, is how dry we got really late May and, and especially June. Um, this has kind of been a little bit of a trend last two years, you know, last year, I always kind of compare last year to this year. Last year, we were a little bit later on our planning progress compared to to this year, but both Junes, the last two years have been so dry. Um, We've had both years, you know, stretches of three, four weeks where we get like two tenths of rain. And then it seems like it's always spotty too, right? Yes. Very spotty, you know. Even at our, our research farms, right? We have a we'll have a field that's, you know, maybe 500 yards north and it seems like that'll get a little bit more rain than a field that's 500 yards south yeah. right it's it's yep. really spotty um but really dry um so really kind of late may to june just so dry but you know the the good thing is that we kind of caught rains in july uh, we caught rains in august it was a little bit cooler this year so just looking at both growing degree day accumulation overall temperature really across the state was was a lot a lot less growing degree day accumulation a little bit cooler um this year um and so that kind of led to, to harvest progress harvest progress was you know for the most part pretty good it, it really depended on where you were in the state um northern indiana a little bit behind um i think they were a little bit cooler a little bit wetter in those areas. Um, a lot of farmers kind of struggled a little bit more uh, to get harvested in those areas in a timely fashion. Um, but for the most part, you know, central southern Indiana, really good harvest progress um, around the state. Um, so I, I kind of equate this year to it was dry. And but when we caught rain, we caught it absolutely when we needed it oh, yeah. um, always a week or two away from almost no crop and then you, then <laughs> yeah, it seems like exactly you like it's it's funny the last few years we you know even as a university we get into to june and it's like doom and gloom right the farmers yeah. are calling oh, yeah. and, you know, we're, we're we got a hit of a drought task force we're gonna you know <laughs> you know and i think i've kind of solved some of this is the more i talk about drought and the more articles i write about drought it tends to rain after i do that <laughs> Yeah, I need to do that more often. Um, but, you know, it's it's interesting where when the rain comes, it, it comes right at pollination. Like we had excellent pollination 
um, this year. It comes in July when we needed it. It comes during grain fill, you know, a little bit cooler. We had moisture during grain fill. Um, so it's, we just, turns out we just have awesome yields. I mean, it's been the last few years um, in the state of Indiana that we've done really well. Um, but it's, it's always interesting how dry it's been early. And then we kind of catch the rains when we need it. We don't have, you know, an overabundance of rain, but when we catch it, it's in spurts right when we needed it, really critical yeah. periods. Um, and it really hits us um, and carry us, carries us through that, that growing season pretty well. Yeah. Did, did, did you notice anything? You know, we had extremely dry conditions here in, in Iowa as, as we, yep. you know, started in, fin especially finished planting. Did, did you yep. notice anything that, you know, when you had those dry conditions, did that impact germination with, with some fields? And, and then also, what, you know, which led to uneven emergence, uneven pollination, you know, maybe some runs in the field, which impacted overall stand? Not too much in, in Indiana. Yeah. Um, I think it was, it was more so that, you know, we had a little kind of enough moisture early on that that crop got out of the ground pretty quickly. Um, you know, a little bit of stand issues here and there, but, you know, replants were, were down. We just didn't have a lot of, of issues. I think one of the biggest challenges we had this year in terms of some stand issues with, with how dry it was, was fertilizer damage. Um, oh, yeah. So, yep. Um, you know, one thing that we saw, um, was both anhydrous, uh, damage. So, um, we had some, some root injury from anhydrous applications. We had some root injury from, you know, even urea applications and then oh. also some root injury from some just, you know, starter fertilizer applications. Yep. Um, you know, some instances of, of pushing those rates a little bit. Um, but I think some of those dry conditions, you know, caused or maybe exacerbated some of those issues. Um, that was probably one of the biggest calls I had in the spring was, was, you know, fertilizer damage, um, on some of those roots. Um, so I think maybe some of the, the drought conditions, you know, really dry soil conditions kind of caused some of that or, or made a little bit worse. Um, so that was kind of the main thing that, that we were noticing early on. Um, but in terms of, you know, sand issues, you know, we just didn't have, know, didn't have a lot of compaction. We had really good emergence, you know, really good stand establishment in those crops. And I think when you look at how dry it got in June, and then you look at where we're at in terms of yields for the state, it just shows how well those crops were established. Yeah. Um, they, yeah. We just didn't have stand issues. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, and those root, you know, those crops just bury their roots. They just establish themselves really well. And it just kind of carried them through those those that dry June. Um, we always talk about, hey, we need. I'd much rather have a dry June than a you know dry dry July and August with corn. Yeah. Um, so yeah. if you can stress that crop a little bit earlier, and I think we saw that where that crop just it just got established and and it buried its roots and it and it just kind of weathered that storm through June, and then set it up it set itself up really well um, when it did catch those rains. I know we have, um, you know, a lot of things are coming together, technology, equipment, germplasm, all these things are coming together. So probably a unique time in agriculture, but I'm, I'm really impressed by the resiliency of, of corn. I mean, the last few years have been really challenging and, you know, you talk about early season injury from fertilizer and then, and then just frankly, the variation in weather, it's, it's wild what comes out of these fields. Cause you, know, you talk about the June 
doom and gloom. And it's funny, yep. you know, cause by about, by about the third week in June, you know, it's like throw the fungicide away. The crop's done. Like, yeah. forget it. <laughs> We're all going to collect insurance, you know? And then, and then, you know, you, you, you sit and you watch it develop and it's, it's just really impressive. But I guess, I guess Daniel, give us um, maybe if you, if you could give our listeners just three key takeaways from this year, either positive affirmations of good habits or, or three things to consider next year as, as good watch outs, uh, what would those be? I think the biggest, you know, takeaway, at least for, for us in Indiana was again, kind of back to the point is, is just how well the crop does, even when it is still kind of dry and dry early on. Um, I think, you know, doing, you know, one, one thing I always kind of preach with corn and and talk about with corn is you kind of have to manage it all year, right? It's, it's, there's every step of the way it's, it's determining its yield components and, you know, I go back and forth with our, our soybean agronomists, you know, <laughs> uh, your, your corn crop, you know, it's kind of a diva, right? You got to kind of hold it in and, and all that. And, you know, you have to kind of manage it throughout the entire season. And, and that's where, you know, really in the state of Indiana, I think throughout the Midwest, we've seen a big, sh- big shift and that, uh, you know, that's not really new, but you look at planning progress in terms of soybeans in front of corn. Um, so a lot of folks now are, you know, hey, I'll, I'll plant corn. Maybe I'll wait for those conditions to be a little bit better. I'll wait for that soil temperature to be a little bit warmer. Um, I want that crop to just get off to the best start it can. I can put my soybeans in a lot earlier. Um, I work with farmers that'll put 2,000 acres of soybeans before they even pull the corn planter yeah. out of the, yep. the shed, right? So I think that's a big shift. Um, but, you know, managing that crop throughout the entire season, getting it established, getting it off to a good start, and, you know, from the state of Indiana, it's just we've just had phenomenal yields um, this year. It's just been unbelievable. Um, you know, it was doom and gloom during June. You know, top end's gone. You know, people's asking me, how much yield did we lose? You know, I'm done doing doing yield estimates in June because I'm always <laughs> wrong. Um, but, you know, and then we get to harvest. And, and one thing I've talked about this year is and what's kind of funny from my perspective is that, you know, during harvest this year, for the most part, farmers have been pretty quiet. Right. And, and from my perspective, when farmers are pretty quiet, it's usually pretty good. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Don't tell good. anyone. That's the, yeah, yeah. 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 You know, it's, they're not, you know, why did this go wrong or what happened here? Or, you know, stuff like that. Um, but I've rode with a lot of farmers in the combine. I was riding with a farmer a couple of days ago and, and a lot of farmers have told me that in Indiana, this is the best crop they've ever had. Um, and you look at, you know, yield estimates in the state, you know, we overshot our state record yield average, you know, by five plus bushel. Oh, uh, we're nice. in 200, 200 bushel state average for Indiana, which is the best that's ever done. Um, we have research trials that pushed, you know, 300, 310 bushels out of research trials. Um, so it just is the testament of, you know, if we can get that crop off to a good start, it can kind of weather some of that storm, the resiliency of, you know, the genetics and the way we management. And then if we can get through pollination, if we can get really, you know, I'm a big proponent of grain fill and, and watching kernel weight and managing late season corn. And, and I think that's where we can really push that crop on the back end of the season. Um, we just saw it this year um, that just had phenomenal yields. And I think, you know, in terms of advice for, for farmers and, and something we always talk about is is just learning year in and year out, right? So yeah. every farm is different. Every field is different. You know, we have so much technology today. We have so much data today, you know, pinpoint what worked and what didn't. 
right? Yeah. Okay, what areas of the field performed and what didn't? Why is this area of the field, why didn't it do as well as, as maybe some other areas of the field? Yeah. Um, so control what you can control. Understand, you know, I always kind of preach yield limiting factors, right? Every yield limiting factor for every farm and every field is different. How do you understand what those are for your own environment and your own field? How do you learn, right? And then get better. Yeah, next absolutely. Year. Um, you know, from my perspective, you know, in, in my job, I'm still pretty young in my job, still learning, right? We know how to grow corn. We know how to grow corn well. You know, farmers do an outstanding job. But how do you keep moving that needle a little bit? And I think it's going to get tougher and tougher to keep moving that needle. Um, but how do you keep getting better? And I think that's, you know, it's just kind of finite little increases, getting better, fine tuning things, getting more efficient in areas. So how do we keep getting better uh, moving? Well, Daniel, it sounds like you guys had a great year, and and I and I think a lot of people throughout the Midwest will probably echo that. I yeah. can't tell you how much I love the idea of continually learning. I mean, I think that's the that's certainly yeah. why Andrew and I do this. Um, so, I guess as we get ready to let you go, um, predictions for your basketball team. I mean, you're the number one ranked team. Uh, obviously, our listeners know that we record these. You you weathered a storm last night, right? Weathered the yep. the, the volunteers. Uh, yep. You guys going to be able to go all the way? I, I loved a couple of weeks ago, Purdue had a, a throwaway game. You know, it was a preseason game or whatever. And the I don't remember the opposing team, but they sent their point guard out to jump against Edie. And so there's this picture <laughs> yep. of this guard that like barely comes up to his belly button. He's what, like seven, six or something. Yep. It's crazy. Yep. So they're going to, they're going to go all, they're going to make it all the way. You know, being, you know, getting immersed with Purdue and, and, they got to do it in March, right? Yeah. And that's, the, you know, Purdue has wonderful. Okay, so the caveat here is I'm a Michigan State alumni and I'm a Kentucky alumni. Right? Oh, so, it's okay. I'm a Michigan State through and through, um, but I love, I still watch Purdue, pay attention to Purdue and, and do all that. And one thing I, I give a lot of the Purdue fans is you got to do it in March. There right? you go. <laughs> um, and I was at Michigan State. I've seen eight Final Fours, right? Yeah, in yeah. Kentucky, uh, very similar. Um, so Purdue, until they do it in March, I'll believe it when I see it, right? <laughs> they, they like to <laughs> like to have these outstanding um, years. I think they are the best team in the country right now. I think they've proven that. Um, but you got to do it in March. So we'll see when yeah. when March rolls around if they can pull it off. If they can, you know, pull a Virginia, um, where if they can turn it around from losing to a 16 seed. Um, I have a high hopes for this team this year at, at Purdue. I think a lot of people around here do, um, but they can, they kind of have a, a little stain on them. He you know, sounds, a bit he of, sounds like a true agronomist, you know, like in <laughs> agronomy and seed sales, it's all about managing expectations, right? So that's, that's where we're at on this one. But so um, D yeah. Daniel, before we go, I, I got to ask, you know, you guys are kind of, yeah. I don't know if I would say the epicenter, maybe it's because a, a, a friend of mine, Darcy Talinko is like the tar spot expert. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what was, uh, did you have any issues, whether it was corn rootworm or I'm, I'm curious, your, what was tar yeah. spot like this year also? Yeah, we had a decent amount of tar spot. So, you know, I work a lot with Darcy. So Darcy and I do a lot of trials She's together. Awesome. I, awesome. I, I talk to her regularly. Um, so we always are paying attention to that. You know, we had a fair amount of tar spot. It, it came in late. Um, and I think we've seen that the last couple of years where it's been dry enough early where it's really pushed those diseases late. Yep. Um, but they did come in, um, even in central Indiana, southern Indiana, uh, we did have tar spot. Uh, we had a lot of fungicide trials this year where we did see, you know, pretty significant responses still. 
uh, with those fungicides. And I think it was still those diseases. Um, so we had tar spot, you know, kind of fairly widespread around the state. I wouldn't say it was severe um, that we've seen in, in years past, um, but it was there. And, and I think that was reflective of, of some of the yield responses we saw, you know, northern Indiana, a little bit cooler, a little bit wetter up in those areas. They yeah. had a little bit more um, in certain areas. Um, you know, corn rootworm is, is a very interesting topic um, because I get asked about it a lot. And I think it, it comes from both Illinois and Iowa. Yeah. Um, Indiana, we don't deal with it very much. Um, we and I talk to our entomologists all the time about this. And, and you know, our corn rootworm populations in Indiana are really at historic lows. Um, and I think it's a little bit of a reflection of, you know, Indiana is pretty much standard 50-50 rotation. It's mm -hmm. five and a half million acres of corn and it's five and a half million acres of soybeans. Oh, and yeah. those farmers stay true to corn soybean rotation. We just don't have a lot of corn on corn acres. And, and where we see some of those corn rootworm issues are in, in more so those corn corn on corn, you know, rotations. We yeah. Indiana just for now, I'm gonna knock on wood, <laughs> right? And, and and say that, but we just don't have a lot of the insect pressure or issues that even some of our neighboring states do like yeah. illinois and iowa uh, we don't have a lot of corn rootworm um, i talked to a lot of farmers that you know are considering dropping their rootworm protection right and you know that's something to monitor and be careful with um, but i'm always having conversations with our our entomologist here and he's like we just it's at historic lows. We just don't see much of an issue still in the state of Indiana with it. Now it's something we're, we're paying attention to and watching. Um, but it's something, you know, from our perspective in the state, and I think it's, you know, has to do with a lot of the rotation in the, in yeah. the state, just yeah. not a lot of corn on corn acres, um, where we just don't have a lot of those, those challenges yet. Right. Yeah. So, um, we, I, we hope not. And yeah. I, I suppose my final question as we wrap yeah. up, did, did you have anything new, new pop-up pop up in, in Indiana in 2023, new, new, good um, or bad, you know, any, any situations that popped up that you just haven't dealt with really? You know, I think, you know, some of them are, are a little bit more on, you know, crown rot is something that I know um, we've kind of monitored um, a little bit, you know, on the soybean front, the, I think it's a red crown rot. That's a little bit newer. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So I know Darcy is dealing with that. Um, you know, we always deal with a little bit of ear mold um, popping up around the state. You know, it's really kind of very localized and where it shows up. Um, so a little bit, you know, northern Indiana struggled a little bit more so than a lot of the other areas of the state. They were a little bit delayed planting, they're delayed harvest, right? I think they're a little bit cooler. You know, they just had struggled drying down in those areas and they had a lot more ear mold um, in, in a lot of those areas of vomitoxin issues. Um, so I think, you know, those are something that the challenges that a lot of times are localized. Um, the other one is, is wildfires, right? That is probably the biggest, oh, yeah. um, um, question I get is, is the wildfire smoke, right? And that's a lot of the Midwest dealt with that in, in the month of June. Um, that is, it's, it's so, you know, I have a lot of farmers that call me and say, Hey, Wildfire smoke, that's the reason the why my crop isn't performing or that's the reason why my crop did better. And I'm like, well, you know, it's so difficult to understand. I, you know, this is my own personal opinion and I've tried to do a lot of digging on this, but I think the wildfire smoke maybe helped us a little bit more than, than hurt us in the month of June um, because 
a common so discussion dry. we've had with all the fires going <laughs> yeah. on over the last number, you know, number of years that we've, we've discussed yeah. the, the physiology yeah. and the impact of, yeah. yeah. Interesting. So I think it, it, you know, it can improve photosynthesis in addition to, to being worse. And I think one thing we saw this year is that, you know, it, when that wildfire smoke came in, that crop was really pretty stressed. Um, it was hot, it was dry and it actually cooled off. Right. And we, I can personally say we saw crops that, that, lowered that leaf temperature and it kind of eased that crop um, a little bit um, in, in the month of June yeah. um, when that wildfire <laughs> smoke came in. Um, so I would argue that it actually kind of helped us a little bit more. You know, can I prove that right? It's so difficult to study. It's so difficult it to understand. Um, That's but it's weird because you got, you got leaf temperature, which impacts respiration. <laughs> then you got, then you got exactly. direct sunlight, which impacts carbon fixation and all that, you know, the whole yeah. photos, it's, yeah. it's complicated. Yeah, exactly. So that's a big one. That's a big, that's a big one that's on a lot of farmers' minds uh, right now. So, um, but yeah, those are some of the main ones, you know, as I wrap up too, you know, this is, you know, you guys are with Bayer. I, you know, one of the kind of the coolest things and, and something that, that I've enjoyed working with is the short stature hybrids um, this year. I think, you know, that is, that's something new. I think that's something that's, that's going to be, you know, at least from my perspective, pretty big. Um, and kind of, you know, changing a little bit of the landscape of the corn production world. So yeah. uh, we've been working a lot with Bear on, on those type of research. So I think there's you know, a lot of positive things that we saw. There's a lot of, you know, challenges and stuff we have to learn. Um, but I think that's that's also, you know, at least from my research perspective, that was kind of the big one that, you know, was really interesting to me. We learned a lot and, and hoping to, to keep continuing on that um, as well. Yeah. Well, Daniel, we, we, uh, we're always super appreciative of the people willing to spend time with us. And, and, yeah. you know, that's mostly because of the hard work that, that you guys are doing and, um, Purdue university and, and the agronomy department. So appreciate you taking time with us today. Uh, obviously yeah. wish you guys a, a great, uh, great winter conference season and, and planning for next year and, and, uh, hope, hope next year's as good as uh, 2023 was for you. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. So, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, we, we had a great year in Indiana, so we we hope we can keep that going uh, moving forward. So. Yeah, thanks yeah, for thanks, being here. Thanks, thanks again, Daniel. Appreciate it and look forward to uh, yeah. having you on potentially as another guest at some point to dig into yeah, some science yeah. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime. Happy to do it. So. <laughs> thanks a lot. Thank you. <laughs> Megan, do us a favor and introduce <laughs> our next guest for us. I have the honor of introducing my colleague, Angie Reekins. Uh, she's a field agronomist in North Central Iowa and uh, expert, crop expert extraordinaire. Um, so I'm glad you guys can have her on your podcast. Megan, thanks for your time. We appreciate you being here today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Megan. Yeah. Thanks, Megan. Yeah, and, and here we are talking with uh, Angie Reekins. Man, uh, this is uh, Angie. I always enjoy listening to you, and uh, I, I have to give a shout out to your husband. Uh, one of uh, a man, a mentor of mine, and somebody that I know the whole industry looks up, uh, Dr. John Hins. So uh, I, I can only imagine that those conversations are man taking you and him both to the next level. So I'm looking forward to picking your brain and getting your key takeaways for 2023. Well, as long as you understand you're picking my brain and not his brain, right? <laughs> <laughs> Although he's the, in the basement right now. But. Is that disclaimer for him or for you? 
Uh, that's for me, <laughs> right? Because uh, he's a really smart, intelligent guy. <laughs> I learn a lot. So. Yeah. Well, no, uh, looking forward to picking your brain. You know, 2023, like the last two to three years, has not been what we'll call normal. I feel like we just, I mean, dry, you know, droughty conditions. It, I mean, from the get-go, it's just been a, a different year. So, you know, this this is an episode where we like to pick the brains of, of you know, uh, specialists from across the Corn Belt, get any key takeaways that we can have from the growing season so that we can potentially implement those in 2024. So we'll just give you the floor. You know, what do you see in 2023? Uh, what were your key takeaways? What'd you learn? Yeah. Um, even though Megan and I have a bunch of counties that are, um, butt up against each other, certainly a different world in North central Iowa compared to central Iowa this last year. Uh, I took a look, went back through the entire drought monitor for North Central Iowa, and I probably should preface this by saying, as a field agronomist uh, in North Central Iowa, I pretty much run um, from just south of Highway 20 all the way to the Minnesota border. Um, I have eight counties I cover, and so I'll kind of focus in that general area centered uh, both east and west of I-35 going north-south through Iowa, um, and mostly north of State Highway 175 or about Highway 20. Um, when I look at that drought monitor for Iowa this last year, every single one of my counties and in north central Iowa was on that drought monitor from the first report on January 3rd of this year all the way up until this week. Um, and I suspect on Thursday when the new drought monitor comes out, things won't have changed a whole bit. Mm -hmm. So we've been in some level of drought this entire year and even parts of last year. Um, that big red blob that had kind of centered itself over Northwest Iowa last year has definitely shifted to the East. And when I look at that as of today, um, for example, probably one third of Worth County is in D3 drought. Uh, mm -hmm. at least 90% of Cerro Gordo County is in D3 drought. Uh, one third of Wright, two thirds of Franklin are in D3 drought. And to be honest, um, last year that was just a little bit further west because last year it was Humboldt County um, that was probably about 75% in D3 drought. So it's yeah. just shifted across that area. Yep. Yeah, that's strange. I mean, you look at some of the rain we've, we've had the last few years and it's, I mean, the, the best way to describe it is spotty, right? So, I mean, even within counties, you can have a, a mile or two difference and growers are getting a half an inch of rain versus a mile or two away, a quarter inch to nothing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it, it's interesting you bring that up and, and still see that as you move north. Um, building on that, you know, I, I know you saw a lot of, you know, uh, similar to what we saw here, probably in central Iowa and across the state. And, and I, I think across the Corn Belt, we're starting to see a lot of potash, sulfur, pH issues. What are, you, what are you seeing up in your area and what's your thoughts? Yeah, that was definitely an early season issue this year. Um, some of it continued throughout the growing season. Um, a lot of our potash deficiency early on, uh, both in corn and soybeans, was uh, clearly drought related, right? Yep. Not necessarily a soil fertility level issue, but we need water to mass flow potassium to those corn roots and soybean roots. Um, and we just had a cold, dry spring, and we didn't see that happen. So we had a lot of potassium deficiency showing up in both soybeans and corn early on. And then we got a little bit of rain, and things kind of changed a little bit, and some of that symptomology went away. But then we got potassium deficiency that showed up again in August as we got warmer and drier. So 
Um, I would encourage people, one, look at your soil fertility levels and make sure they're in the optimum category or a little bit higher for crop production, depending on where you are in the United States, right? But number two is we have to stop and think about the impact of those dry soils on nutrient uptake. And that oh, yeah. definitely showed up in our potassium deficiency this year. Yeah. Yeah. You really start to see issues like that in these dry years, right? It, it, you know, I think for the most part, our soils and the moisture that we typically get mask a lot of issues. We start getting these dry scenarios. It really starts showing up, you know, the impact of, of, of fertility and, and even pH obviously impacting fertility. Yeah. And then follow that up with sulfur deficiency early in the spring. We sometimes see sulfur deficiency early in the spring, right? In that small corn up to maybe V6, V7. A lot of that has to do with the fact that a lot of our sulfur supply to plants, in particular corn, is coming from the soil organic matter. So if it has been cold and dry, mineralization of that soil organic matter, much like nitrogen, uh, the soil organic matter has to mineralize for sulfur to convert to sulfate, which is what the plant form take the plant takes up as a form. And since it was cool and dry this spring, we saw a lot of sulfur deficiency in places too. That kind of tends to go away after that V6, V7 stage. Uh, but in some places, it just didn't go away this year. Now, once again, a couple of reasons. One, one was the cool and dry conditions. And two is uh, we're, we're just not to the point in Iowa where we've convinced everybody that they need a sulfur application to grow corn yeah. in Iowa. And there are pockets in north central Iowa that are big believers in that based on a lot of research Iowa State has done at the research farm and some local farmers, especially around that whole Kanawha to Clarion area. But you get a little further east from there, um, and maybe that message just hasn't landed yet with those folks. So I would encourage everybody to look at a sulfur application, right? Uh, we, we'd want somewhere around 20 pounds of sulfur an acre um, for corn production in Iowa and uh, also for alfalfa production, right? Probably even hmm. a little higher rate there. But we definitely, if you're, if you're not applying sulfur in your corn production system, you really need to consider that. You made the recommendation for 20 pounds. What's the easiest form to apply that in? Well, I don't know that it depends on ease of form. I think it depends on availability of form, right? You get closer to that Fort Dodge area and you got access to gypsum pretty easy um, and at a much cheaper price. There are some folks that are still putting on elemental sulfur because it's cheaper. Uh, I would caution people, uh, while it's a great source of sulfur, once again, it's in the elemental form it has to totally convert to that sulfate form and that takes a little bit more time. And once again, that's a, that's a biological process, right? That requires microbes and the right temperatures and the right moisture. So if you're going to use elemental sulfur, you may want to apply that in the fall. Uh, you may even want to apply that the year prior to corn production. I mean, it certainly isn't going to hurt the beans, but um, it's going to take a little bit longer to convert into that sulfate form. Yeah. Other people are using some AMS, right, or ATS. Um, it it just depends on what people have access to and what they're comfortable using. Yeah. Uh, as we continue to build on the the 2023, um, was there any? You know, I'm just thinking of corn rootworm be a prime example in Central Iowa. You go up northeast. What what were you, did you have any disease or pests that were maybe a little bit more prominent in in your neck of the woods? You know, disease pressure, Andrew was not really that big of an issue in north central Iowa. We were 
a little drier than central Iowa that got a little, a lot more rain actually in June, um, since I actually live in central Iowa, right? And just travel to north central yeah. Iowa. Um, we didn't have a lot of tar spot. We had some tar spot. We had some other corn foliar diseases, but nothing at the pressure that central Iowa was seeing, especially Megan was seeing right south of Highway 30, probably even down along Interstate 80. We just didn't have that corn disease pressure this year because we were relatively warm and dry. Um, In soybeans, we did see maybe, I mean, we have our usual soybean diseases, right? Frog eye leaf spot. Um, We definitely see SDS coming on much later this year than usual. Um, But we did see more white mold than I would have expected considering how dry it was, right? Like I was maybe shocked to see that in fields and... I'm hoping that's something I can talk about at my winter pesticide meetings this year. So I'm working on that. Yeah, that, that's a, that's, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the disease. We did, we had Damon Smith on here to mm-hmm. talk about white mold because, I mean, man, you, you typically think of that as a northern Iowa issue. And man, that's moving to like Jasper County, you know, down in southwest Iowa, parts that we typically, I mean, it's spreading quicker than what we think it would. And so that, yes. that's an issue we're going to have to talk about quite a bit more. It, my colleagues in western Iowa and southwest Iowa tell me they saw white mold this year too, where they very rarely see that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it's all, I'm, I'm glad we have you on here too, because I feel like, you know, we, we often talk about the Des Moines lobe and, and how <laughs> there's so many differences, but, but I also, I mean, I live in central Iowa too, and I feel like there's a difference in our Des Moines lobe versus the Northern Iowa Des Moines lobe. They're, they're just, I don't know if it's drainage, you know, there's just something to it. So I'm curious, you know, you talked about like SDS and just some other, I mean, IDC, is, is that an yeah. issue up north up there? Oh, or? my gosh. <laughs> IDC. <laughs> Don't get me like, started. It might be a sound bite. <laughs> it's a sound bite, but if the people that were listening to the podcast could have seen the eye roll I just did, right? <laughs> yeah. um, IDC, that thing that just won't go away, and it's worse in droughty years. Um, yep. So we saw a lot of IDC that, that last year and this year that came on earlier than usual that seemed to hang around a lot longer than usual. Um, we talk about Megan mentioned something about soybeans and soil fertility. Um, we, we are hard on our soybeans, right? And that IDC is really hard on our soybeans. And we took some yield off those soybeans just as long as that IDC was around. Um, they were short, they were stunted, they were yellow, and then they had some other issues on top of that that compounded some of that yield loss. Uh, I don't know that we can stress enough that people really need to be thinking about uh, variety selection there to manage IDC. Yep. We really probably need to get those um, soybean cyst nematode tests taken because that's just complicating the factor. Um, There's not anything we can really do to manage those really high pH soils where we see that IDC. We can't spray our way out of it, right? We can't really manage our soil fertility to that point, or at least the pH to an economical point. There are some products out there that seem to help uh, mitigate that stress, Um, but we really need to start with variety selection first, um, or God forbid, I tell you that we're going to grow all corn, but, um, <laughs> it's been really nasty the last yeah, couple of years yeah. in North central Iowa. And it just seems like it's hanging around a, a lot longer. Yeah. That's tricky too. Cause then you get that corn and corn situation and then you start talking to rootworm. What, what was the rootworm pressure like in your area? 
Yeah, we saw a lot of extended diapause this year. Lots of complaints about um, rootworm pressure on first-year corn. Um, We don't always have people that are looking at that first-year corn where it needs either a trait or an insecticide. Um, So we... We have a lot of people, I think, this year that will change their mind in future years about how to manage that first year corn after soybeans. Um, We really are going to probably need a trait on that first year corn or we're going to need a soil applied insecticide. Um, Obviously, our recommendations aren't to stack those two things in first year corn, um, but we had a lot of extended diapause pressure this year. Um, We also had a lot of pressure from Western corn rootworms. But the northern corn rootworms seem to stick around a lot longer this year. And yeah. even last year, I've noticed. So. Yeah, that's kind of what I noticed, too. So you did have some westerns up there, though, huh? We did. My rootworm trapping would tell you that the westerns probably had a little bit higher numbers in some of the traps I had put out. Uh, hmm. But the northerns were a lot more in number, right, um, over a longer period of time. Um, and a lot more pressure in that first year corn. Yeah, man, if, if it's not a hard enough conversation already talking, you know, whether it's resistance or reduced susceptibility to traits, then you factor in this extended diapause and that just throws a massive wrench in any kind of planning or control for those, you know, for, for corn rootworm. That, that really makes it tricky. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say, I literally wrote a note while we were talking that we, we probably need an episode almost exclusively focused on just the management considerations, right? Because, I mean, it's easy to it's easy to just kind of say that, but the implications go to, I mean, all over. How should we be scouting? What types of thresholds are yeah. we going to use as, as key management decisions? You know, the, the, the economics come into play in a, in a big way. We, you know, you price these traits and you go, okay, it just, it just feels like that's just a, an hour probably would yeah. hardly cover yeah. the, the spider web of how do we think through those issues and how do we make the, the right decisions? Because there's economics and there's stewardship yeah. in, involved in that. So there's a, a lot to be considered. Yeah. And again, all complicated by droughty soils. Correct. Right? Yeah. So that's the one thing we can't control, right? <laughs> yeah. If we're going to continue to be dry, we're going to have to figure this out. Yeah. Well, that, that's a, I mean, that's a, Thinking about the year, you know, I, I think you, you brought up a really a lot of good points re- regarding how this how drought can impact. You know, you mentioned potash uptake. You know, you mentioned corn rootworm feeding. Was there anything that, as you entered into harvest, you know, we started seeing the impact of drought? You know, stock quality yield. What 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 do you start seeing up there? Well, that's the that's the confounding part, right? As dry as we were, um, a lot of people will tell you they were they saw some good yields both in corn and soybeans, but not, I shouldn't say corn and soybeans, corn or soybeans, right? It seemed like if you had really good corn yield, maybe your soybean yield wasn't as good. Vice versa, if your soybean yield was above average for your farm, your corn yield might not have been so good or not where you thought it should be. Um, It was kind of all over the place. So the further north and east you went, uh, the yields were a little bit lower, a lot lower. here in the southern part of north central Iowa, right, that Hardin County area, parts of Hamilton County, people tell me they've seen yields that they've not seen before on their farms. They were excited about that. Yeah. Um, they might have caught an extra rain or two, but um, 
things got off with a good start. We planted a little earlier than we usually do. We wrapped up harvest a little earlier than we did. Um, Andrew knows this, but I don't like talking about yields because as soon as somebody hears me say we had some record yields, everybody else is like, no, I didn't, Angie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, can't, absolutely. you can't win that conversation. So um, there are a lot of people I think were really happy with yields, but let's not forget there were places where it was ex- very dry oh, yeah. Um, yeah. and yields were not where people had hoped they were going yep. to be. Our, our average across the state isn't all 250 or 260, right? There's <laughs> right. a reason our farm average. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. I, I will tell you, I have people tell me that they've had farm farm averages of 257, and those were yields they'd never seen before on those farms, and those are longtime farmers, right? I've had people tell me they had yields go 125 on mm. corn. So yeah. um, like I said, it's not always my favorite topic to talk about. And there yeah. were a lot of things that impacted yield this year. Yeah. One of the things that, that we've enjoyed and and really kind of the heart of this podcast is just the idea that unfortunately that happens every year, you know, depending on the disparity, it's not always 125 to 250. But one of the things that we've we've really enjoyed is the process of getting to spend time with people like you, Angie, and just kind of say, okay, what went right? to, to hit the high side of that algorithm. And then, and then what could we have managed to maybe bring, you know, bring the bottom side of that algorithm up. So, um, really appreciate you taking the time with us today. And, And one of the things we always try and do is make sure we thank, um, everybody in, in this industry for their hard work, because it, it helps us understand things and, and helps our listeners understand that. So really appreciate you taking time to join us today. Um, and, uh, appreciate all your hard work in the field and, and the continued learning. Yeah, likewise, you guys make this painless and fun, right? And uh, <laughs> if you didn't, some conversation we should have sometime is we really should talk about the amount of herbicide carryover we saw. So maybe that's a future topic or maybe maybe Megan covered that, but yeah, we'll have to uh, add another you. outstanding factor this year in North Central Iowa. Yeah, we, we talked about having a full episode on, on herbicide pre and post with Megan. So maybe we can have you both on talk about herbicide carryover and pre and post efficacy. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I, th- I, I love it. And I appreciate you bringing that up because I think certainly one of the things we want to be is a conduit for you to speak to your, you know, to your growers and, and your part of the world. And then, you know, what happened in North Central Iowa will probably repeat itself somewhere else next somewhere else next year and so it's good learnings even for the people that maybe didn't experience it so yeah thank you angie appreciate the time thanks guys see you later thanks see a ya. lot thank you for joining us on another episode of a penny for your thoughts we love your feedback please email us at a penny for your thoughts at gmail.com That's a penny, the number four, your thoughts at gmail.com or reach out to Andrew and I on our social media. Thank you for tuning in.